Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So Micah got here this morning, and he came up to me and said, Do you know where we're starting this morning? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> like I'm not going to know what book we're doing next. Those of you who are uh, particularly observant, uh, yesterday I actually created a new page in the GCA archives so people would have known what was coming if they noticed the new page pop up. Turn to Isaiah. No, we're not doing the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 40. We're starting this morning in the Gospel of Mark for various different reasons. Mark is going to start by quoting right out of Isaiah 40. So it seems appropriate that we would start at Isaiah 40. But let me give you some introduction to the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. Fully 90% of what you read about in Mark is also covered in the other Synoptic Gospels. Luke and Mark have additional information that Mark doesn't have, but Mark also has a really interesting approach to the things that he does bring up. Mark does not give you any genealogy. He doesn't trace Jesus back to the Davidic kingdom or all the way back to Adam like Luke does. Rather than a birth narrative, rather than a young man confounding the leaders in Jerusalem, he starts at... There was a man named John the Baptist. The only reason he brings up John the Baptist is to say, and he baptized Jesus. So he starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He starts at the beginning of Jesus' three and a half years on the planet leading up to Christ's Passion Week. A full third of the book of Mark is just about the Passion Week. And so Mark has a very specific agenda He's guiding his readers as quickly as he can to the Passion Week and to what Christ accomplished on the cross. So he's going to start right out. His first chapter is about how tremendously sovereign Jesus was, how he did miracles, how even demons bowed to him, how he taught with authority, how he was the Son of God incarnate. He's going to nail that down as quickly as he can because he's making a beeline straight to what Jesus did. Now, speaking of what Jesus did, you're also going to notice in the book of Mark that Mark doesn't quote a lot of what Jesus said. He tells you a lot about what Jesus did. He's just trying to prove one essential point. And the reason that he starts with Isaiah is because he's out to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah 53 looms very large in the Markian mindset. Now, the book of Mark, though it's very short, does some absolutely fascinating things like 
It's clear, it's agreed on from the very earliest days that Mark was written to a predominantly Gentile audience. Despite the fact that it's written to a Gentile audience, Mark still quotes exactly what Jesus said when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if you're a Jew who knows the book of Daniel, you're going to know that the Son of Man is one of the most powerful bits of nomenclature that the Jewish Messiah could use, because the Jewish Messiah is identified as the Son of Man. But if you're writing to a Gentile audience that doesn't know all that Daniel stuff, and you're trying to convince the Gentile audience that Jesus actually is the Son of God, and let's say you're trying to amp up your story a little bit, let's say that you're a liar, let's say that you're trying to convince people at any cost, well, then you're not going to have Jesus walking around referring to himself as son of man. You're going to have him say, I am the son of God. That's a better story for the Gentiles. But because Mark is an honest reporter, and because Jesus actually referred to himself as son of man, the shortest gospel... Sent to Gentiles, nevertheless quotes Jesus calling himself Son of Man more frequently than any of the other Gospels. I find this fascinating. I find that an internal indication that Mark is an honest reporter. Now that's important. He's a reporter. He's not an eyewitness. Mark was not one of the apostles. Mark may have been the young man that we're going to read about at the end of the book of Mark who was in the Garden of Gethsemane and had his robe torn off and ran out, they say, naked. That may be John Mark. John Mark was also the one who went on the missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas and then decided to go back at some point. We don't really know why he turned back, but when Paul and Barnabas decided to go out on their second missionary journey... There was a contention between Barnabas and Paul about taking John Mark because he had bugged out the first time. The contention grew so great that Paul and Barnabas couldn't go together anymore. So Paul left without Mark and Mark goes along with Barnabas. There are all these indications that Mark is kind of around the edges. He's there kind of as some of this is happening. Now his mother, who is Mary also has a home in Jerusalem, which is where one of the early churches met in Jerusalem. Now the Jerusalem church is led by Peter, John, and James. And so Mark would have been introduced very early on to Peter, John, and James and their theology. So he would have heard it there. He would have heard it from Barnabas. He would have heard it from Paul. But the main source for what Mark knows and what Mark says comes from Peter. The very earliest Christian sources, the earliest of the forefathers, writing at the very end of the first century, Papias, a church father, writes that the book of Mark was written under the tutelage of Peter, that it's essentially Peter's gospel. And so the argument I got this week was, you just did first and second Peter, doesn't it seem appropriate that you would go on from there to Peter's gospel? And that was the argument that won the day. That's why we're not in Romans this morning. We'll get to Romans, I hope, after we read Mark. But 
we're going to read the gospel that most applies to what Peter had to say. And what is interesting about knowing that Peter is the source for so much of Mark's history and eyewitness accounts, indicated by the fact that Mark writes about these intimate conversations that only an eyewitness could know. And Mark isn't an eyewitness. And yet he writes these things as if he knows for a fact that these things were said. Well, that's because there was Peter who was an eyewitness, who was there, who did hear these things. And so Mark can write about these things with authority. Even though Mark's gospel is anonymous, in other words, at the very beginning of it, he doesn't say, I, Mark, wrote this, the way that Paul would start his letters and say, I, Paul. The title, according to Mark, was added later by a scribe sometime before A.D. 125, because early manuscripts dating back to that period have the phrase, according to Mark. So there's sufficient evidence that's available from the early church tradition and from the information that you find inside the gospel to identify the author. The unanimous testimony of the early church fathers is that Mark was an associate of the apostle Peter and that Mark was the author. The earliest known statement of this comes, as I said, from Papias, A.D. 110. He quoted the testimony of John the Elder who is probably John the Apostle, Papias quotation from Mark as author is included in the following information about Mark. He says that he was not an eyewitness or a direct apostle of Jesus, but he accompanied the Apostle Peter and heard his preaching. This is all what Papias tells us. And that he wrote down accurately all that Peter remembered of Jesus' words and works but he doesn't write it down in order necessarily. It's almost like Peter said, oh, and another thing. Oh, and this happened, and then Mark writes it down. So it's not in chronological succession. He was Peter's sort of interpreter, probably meaning, according to Papias' own language, that he explained Peter's teaching to a wider audience by writing it down. And his account, according to Papias, is wholly reliable. That's what Papias says, 110 AD. And he heard it from John the Apostle. So we have very good attestation from very early in church history that Mark was tutored by Peter, and that's why he wrote this. Now that makes it even more interesting. If Peter is the source for what Mark wrote, we read more about Peter's failure in the Gospel of Mark than we do in the other Gospels. This again shows internal evidence of honest reporters. Because let's again think through this. Let's think about it honestly. If you were liars, if the apostles were liars, if Jesus actually was crucified and then just stayed in the grave, or if Jesus' body was eaten by dogs, as the theology professor up at Vanderbilt postulates, if Jesus died and stayed dead, then the apostles were liars when they said that he was resurrected and that they had seen him alive and talked and walked and ate with him. If they're liars and they're recounting the story of Jesus, don't you think that Peter, primary liar, we already know his personality, we already know he's Mr. Foot and Mouth, we already know that he denied Jesus, wouldn't you think that he would, when he does his gospel, wouldn't he say how good he did? 
Wouldn't he talk about how he's kind of the head of the church, and I was right there with Jesus the whole way, and I stood right by him? And I... No, you read more about Peter's failure in the book of Mark than you do in the other Gospels, which, again, is an internal indication that these are honest reporters who are reporting what they honestly experienced. And I'll be pointing those kind of things out as we go through the book of Mark. Several features, as we read through Mark, also indicate his connection with Peter. First, there's the vividness and unusual detail of the narratives that suggest that they were derived from actual memories of somebody who was in Jesus' inner circle. In other words, there's no way for Mark to have just known these things. And yet he writes about these things. The author also uses Peter's words and Peter's deeds in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and chapter 14. He's just constantly referring to intimate knowledge of what Peter did and what Peter thought. And then the inclusion of the words, the apostles and Peter in chapter 16, verse 7, indicate that Peter is the source for all of this because it's unique to the other Gospels. The other Gospels never say, and the apostles were together, and Peter. None of them would think to add Peter, but Mark does. So all of this indicates that Peter is the source for what Mark is writing. Theologians, in trying to determine the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote first, who wrote second, postulate because there's similarity especially between the synoptics some postulate that there was a common written source that they were all referring to because when they quote Jesus they quote him the same way sometimes it's verbatim sometimes it's word for word And so theologians, again, postulate that there may have been a written document that was just the quotations of Jesus. It's called the quell document or the Q document. It's never been found. Instead, there are now theologians who are saying that maybe that original source, maybe that first document is actually the Gospel of Mark because it does seem that he was the first of the four to actually write this stuff down. And that makes sense because if he was always there, always on the edge, associated with Paul and associated with Barnabas and intimately associated with Peter and being there with James and John, then if he was writing this stuff down as he was hearing it, then he would be a really good source for Matthew and Luke when they're writing. And that would explain why Matthew, Mark, and Luke have so many similarities. Matthew incorporates about 90% of what Mark wrote. Luke, over 40%. In fact, over 600 of Mark's 661 verses can be found in Matthew and Luke. So that indicates that they either found him so credible that they decided to follow his lead or that they were all working from some common source. But obviously, Matthew and Luke saw the stuff in Mark as being accurate, or else they wouldn't have quoted it. They would have corrected it. Nowhere in the New Testament have any explicit statements been made regarding the dating of Mark. 
The discourse centered around Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple suggests that Mark's gospel was written before 70 AD because Mark doesn't take the time to say Jesus predicted the fall of the temple and then by golly that happened. Titus, the Roman general and the Roman armies came in and destroyed the temple because that would be evidence, that would be proof obviously that Jesus was a prophet who predicted a really important event But Mark doesn't say that. He only records Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed. So that's an internal indication that Mark was writing before the temple actually was destroyed. And as I said, the most early testimony of the church fathers is that Mark's gospel was written probably in Rome, but it was definitely written for Gentile Roman Christians. And there are characteristics inside the book that make that obvious, like the fact that several times Mark says something in Aramaic and then he has to interpret it. Or he says something about a Hebrew custom and then he interprets it. Well, he wouldn't have to do that if his audience was primarily Jewish. So it becomes pretty obvious that he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Mark recorded, and this is important, Mark recorded Peter's confession, you are the Christ. That is the simplest, most direct statement of the divinity of Jesus that you're going to find. Jesus didn't accept or reject the title, but he turned the disciples' attention from the question of his identity to that of his activity. He pointed at his activity as the evidence of who he was. And so that may be why Mark spends so much time talking about what Jesus did as opposed to what Jesus said. We're in Isaiah 40. Mark is going to start right out by quoting the first couple verses of Isaiah 40. So let's read that, and then we're going to read Isaiah 53. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the beginning of the Mark quote. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I'm supposed to stop there, but I'm going to keep reading because notice how well Isaiah's theology fits with our theology. The next thing that Isaiah writes is, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? The answer is, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
All right, turn to Isaiah 53 for a moment. This is the portion of Isaiah that is often called the gospel in the Old Testament because it is so clearly, so obviously about Jesus. We're actually going to start in chapter 52, verse 13. If it were up to me, that's right where the 53 would be. Because it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Okay, so he's dead. All the way through this, this is the prediction of the death of the Messiah to come. And then to the shock of every Jewish reader reading this, verse 10 says, And he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. That caused the Jews to argue that there must be two messiahs, 
Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. That's the only way that Isaiah could be accurate. That maybe one Messiah would be the one that died and then there'd be the one that ruled and reigned. They couldn't figure out that it would be the same man. What Isaiah was writing about was one man who Jesus came and fulfilled, who died and then raised again and will return to the planet to rule and reign as well. So after explaining that Christ has been dead and that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, after that he's alive. He will see, God will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, now I said all of that and read all of that because that's what inspires Mark. That's what Mark is trying to demonstrate and prove. That's what Mark's trying to show the Gentile audience, that that suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about is Jesus of Nazareth, and that it was testified to by the authority he had, by the miracles he had, how God even testified at his baptism, this is my son who I'm well pleased, and how even the demons testified, you are the son of God. He gets to all that right away. In the first half of the first chapter, Mark's going to point all that out because he wants his audience to understand who it is that ends up on the cross and why he's there. You get all that? Let me give you a quick outline of the book of Mark. Turn to Acts 10. This yet again is another indication that Peter is the source. Acts 10, we're going to start around verse 34. Well, not around. We're going to start right at verse 34. I know you with your electronic gadgets got there before I did. I know that. I would like to point out, it's not a race. You remember this story. Peter was up on the housetop. He was staying with Simon the Tanner. He saw a vision. It was midday. He was hungry. He sees a vision of like a tablecloth that comes down and opens up, and there's all kinds of unclean food in it. And he hears a voice from heaven say, rise and eat. He's hungry. He wants to rise and eat. But then he sees that it's unclean food, and he says, No, Lord, because no unclean thing has ever touched my lips. Oh, no. Three times that happens. God ends up saying to him, Don't you call unclean what I call clean. Okay, so now Peter is getting the lesson. Because at the same time that God is dealing with Peter, God has been dealing with Cornelius. 
And in dealing with Cornelius, he has told Cornelius, a Gentile, to go to the house of Simon the Tanner on a street called Straight, and you're going to find Peter there. Go and ask for Peter, and then he's going to tell you the rest of the story. Peter's going to tell you what you need to know. So the Gentile, Cornelius, goes looking for Peter. He shows up at the door, and he is asking for Peter. Well, Peter would never be seen with a Gentile. He wouldn't eat with a Gentile. He's not going to go into a Gentile's house because the Gentiles are unclean. So what does God teach him first? Don't call unclean what I call clean. These Gentiles belong to me. I'm bringing those Gentiles to you. If they belong to me, they're clean. Don't you call them unclean. And so that's where we're at in the story here. In fact, let's start at verse 23. On the next day, he arose and he went away with them. That's Peter going with the brethren from Joppa who accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And he called together his relatives and his close friends. And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, with a Gentile, or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. And so I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago at this hour, I was praying in the house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, the reason we're here at this moment is Peter is now going to give you the outline of the book of Mark. It's amazing how closely these two parallel. Peter is going to give a synopsis of the gospel story. And then as you read through Mark, you're going to see that Mark fleshes out this synopsis right here, which is another indication that Peter is the source for what Mark wrote and the order he wrote it in. So opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right, is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. The book of Mark is going to start right out with, there was a man named John, and he started a baptism. 
And everybody came out to be baptized by him. And then Jesus came and was baptized by him. And then the spirit came down like a dove. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter starts right there. Mark starts right there. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, says verse 38, how he appointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Think about what just got said. This is Peter after the cross called into a building full of Gentiles waiting to hear what he has to say. And this is his preachment, his synopsis of what the gospel is. That's the very essence of what the gospel is. This is Jesus. You know about it. You've heard about him. The devils obeyed him. He drove out demons. He healed people. He went about doing good. He preached. They killed him. He raised again from the dead. He chose certain people and revealed himself to those chosen certain people. And he has all the authority. He's the one. He's the one God appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets of the Old Testament all testify of him. And everyone who believes on him for forgiveness will receive forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel right there. Okay, that's the story of the book of Mark. And as we go through the book of Mark, you're just going to see an expansion of that story right there. It's a quarter to 12, thus ends the introduction. You know the rule. Introductions do not count against my time. Turn to the book of Mark. Are there any questions so far? All right, good. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What did Mark just do? He said, I'm about to tell you the gospel. The same thing Peter just synopsized. That's what I'm going to tell you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me adjure you for one moment. Whenever you see the word gospel here, because it's going to show up a lot, don't turn those gears in your head where you start thinking of the word gospel as a technical term or a word of art. Think a word that has been brought forward. The original Greek word, euangelion, simply means good news, good information. In the Old English, that was translated good spiel, 
good talking. And then that became our gospel. That's where the word derived from. So when you see the word gospel, think good news, because you're going to see the gospel about this and the gospel about that. It means good news about this. No first century Greek speaker seeing the word gospel would have instantly thought, oh, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That hadn't occurred yet. In the early portion of this letter, prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you're still going to see Mark use the word gospel in different contexts. And what he's saying, and what I want you to think about, is that this thing is good news. This is good information. Okay? This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's why we started right out by reading that from Isaiah. Now it's interesting that Mark, writing to a largely Gentile audience, would begin by quoting from Isaiah. But I think what he's attempting to do is say, look, all the way back in our scripture, all the way back at the prophets, even people like John the Baptist were prophesied. In other words, the things that I'm talking about, the things I'm telling you, the things that occurred in Judea and Jerusalem, these are not a mistake. These are actually fulfillments of prophetic utterances that have been around for a thousand years. So everything I'm telling you is according to the grace and the purpose of an almighty God who determined these things from the beginning. So he starts out by saying, the prophets have already told us this. Now let me tell you what the fulfillment of it is. Verse 4, John the Baptist or John the baptizer, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's very, very important as we construct our theology and as we think about things like baptism that we keep very straight that there are various different baptisms in the Bible. Well, first off, the word baptism means immerse. It's talking about an immersion. Because Matthew is going to talk about the fact that John the Baptist referred to Jesus as someone he couldn't even loosen the latchets of his shoes because he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Okay, well, what does that mean? What's that about? Because nobody here, even though you've all been immersed in water, none of you have been immersed in fire. So what was he talking about? Well, the word baptism, if you think of immersion as what baptism means, then you can see that Jesus is the one who judges the quick and the dead, and he immerses some in the Spirit of God and some in the everlasting fire. And both of those immersions are up to him. So you can start to comprehend the ways that the word baptism is used. In the Old Testament, there were various cleanings and cleansings that the Jews would do that were baptisms, that were immersions for the purpose of cleansing, for the purpose of cleaning. 
And so the Jews didn't think that they needed any greater cleaning or cleansing. John comes on the scene and starts saying, you do. You need another immersion. You need something beyond just that immersion into Moses. Because Paul even tells us that all the Israelites who left Egypt following Moses, when they went through the Red Sea, because they went down under the water and came back up, that they were baptized into Moses. That's the language. They were immersed into Moses. Okay, so now John comes along and says, you need another immersion. You need a different one. In fact, this immersion is to repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. The Jews would argue the same way they argued with Jesus and said, well, we're the sons of Abraham. We've never been slave to anybody and we're fine because they would point to Abraham as their father and think that they've got the sure guarantee of the Abrahamic covenant. So we don't need any of that. We're not sinful. Jesus comes on the planet and says, you're all sinful, levels the playing field. All of you are sinful. If you've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you're a sinner. If you've ever hated your brother, you're a sinner. If you haven't turned the other cheek, you're a sinner. And so... John comes on the scene, laying out the pathway, laying out the highway for our Lord to come on, and he starts a baptism of repentance. Now, this is not a baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what we believe in. That's what Paul reveals later. Paul reveals that there is a baptism into Christ. Christ says later that you need to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul comes across to people who he says, have you been baptized since you believed? And they say, well, we were baptized with John's baptism. And they say, well, have you received the Holy Spirit since you were baptized? They say, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, well, Paul says, you've got to be baptized into Christ now. So all I'm saying is recognize that the baptism of John was a very particular kind of baptism that was appropriate for that moment. And if you don't see that, if you don't get that, then you're going to start teaching that baptism takes away your sin. Baptism doesn't take away your sin. Christ takes away your sin. The baptism that John taught was a baptism of repentance so that your sin could be taken away. And so that baptism of repentance is unique to John. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were baptizing by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey, mm -mm, good eating. <laughs> and he was preaching and saying, after me, by the way, Tom, look up Matthew 3.11 for me if you would. He was saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I immersed you under water. He will immerse you under the Holy Spirit. You are going to get wet when I baptize you. You are going to be saved when he baptizes you. 
You get the parallel? And this is where Matthew decides that one more thing has to be added. So Matthew 3.11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire. Mark doesn't mention that. Matthew sees it as important. He's not just the judge of the living, but of the living and the dead. And it came about in those days. Here's the whole reason that he brought up John. Here's the whole reason that baptism was even introduced. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You'll notice that he says nothing about the fact that they were cousins or Mary and Elizabeth or the leaping for joy. And none of that. He's just rushing right to his essential point, which is Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and I got proof. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and a spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And immediately... The Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted of Satan. Notice he doesn't tell us what the temptations were. He doesn't tell us the conversations. He doesn't tell us about Jesus conquering every one of the temptations that are brought before him. He just mentions that that happened because, like I said, he's making a beeline to who is he and what was he doing up there on the cross. So he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. What did Mark just do? He just made him in control of being tempted by Satan, the wild animals on the planet around him and the angels that come to minister to him. He's in charge of heaven and earth. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of God. Okay, now notice he doesn't tell you about John going into custody or what John had said to Herod or why it was that he was ultimately captured or put into prison, that he was ultimately beheaded, that he went through his own crisis. Are you the one that we're looking for or are we looking for another? Mark mentions none of that because that's not his purpose. His purpose is to show you who Jesus is. And he came preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, this is the fullness of time. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Okay, what good news? What good news were they called to believe in at that point? Believe the good news. Believe what I'm telling you. Notice he didn't say, believe in my death, burial, and resurrection. That hadn't happened yet. That's what we would call the gospel, but that hadn't occurred yet. He came preaching, look, the good news of God. He was preaching the gospel of God and that God was being faithful and that God hadn't given up on Israel. Remember that for 400 years before John the Baptist walked on the planet, God had been silent The end of the book of Malachi ends with the word curse. 
And then for 400 years, the Israelites are living in the Middle East and they haven't had a prophet. So much so that you can go back and read their history and they even took the implements of the temple and put them away and said, we don't know how to use these properly until a prophet comes and tells us about it. They didn't have a prophet. God wasn't speaking. Jesus comes on the planet preaching the good news of God. God is still for you. I'm the Messiah of Israel. He hasn't forgotten you. I'm here. The kingdom is among you because your king is among you. I'm here now because all the things that God had ever told you through the prophets in the Old Testament, all of that is still true and accurate and happening in time and history. And I'm here right now in the fullness of time proving that to you. Well, that's mighty good news. That's good news after 400 years of not hearing from God that Jesus walks on the planet and preaches the good news of God. Well, that's what he's talking about when he says, believe the good news. Believe what I'm telling you. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He proves it. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and Andrew. By the way, who is Simon? Peter. Peter. And as I mentioned, this is Peter's gospel. So who does Peter make the first apostle that got called by Jesus? Peter. Going along, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, so you're fishermen. You know how to catch fish. I'm going to show you something new. I'm going to show you how to catch men, how to fish for men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. That is an effectual call. They're busy just doing their job and mending nets and fishing and making a living. And Jesus walks up and says to them, follow me. And what do they do? They follow him. Why? I think they didn't have a choice. I think they had to follow him. And notice, again, I know I keep pointing out these rather obvious things, but it's really worth saying. You will notice that they didn't know who he was. He's the Lord of glory. He's the king on the planet. He's walking around in shoe leather. The voice from heaven has already designated him as the son of God. They don't know it and can't get to him. But he came all the way from heaven, was born to a virgin, waited 30 years and was baptized and started his ministry. And he came to them and he told them, you follow me. They did not make the decision. They did not use their free will. He did not appeal to them. He did not say, you know, if you follow me, I'll give you a bigger house and a bigger car, and I'll guarantee that you'll never get sick. Instead, he said, follow me. And they followed right away. He didn't say, if you'll just make me Lord and Savior, I'll save you someday. He didn't appeal to their will. He didn't appeal to their flesh. He overwhelmed their spirit and said, follow me. Now, let's be honest for just a moment. 
Isn't that what happened to you? You were just going through your life, doing your job, just doing your thing. And then one day, the voice of God, the call of God, the voice of Christ called you out from the rest of the world. And you had no choice but to follow. Is there anybody here who wants to take credit for the fact that you believe in Christ today? I should put my hand on. No, you follow Christ today because he told you to follow him. And you were without choice in the matter. You had to follow because right away, as soon as he started calling people, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. By the way, that phrase, they left their nets, is really, really important because it means they left everything. They left their job. They left their livelihood. They left their means of survival. They left everything, followed him. They trusted him to take care of them. And immediately, immediately, they didn't even argue about it. They didn't say, what's in it for me? None of that. None of the stuff that modern evangelists try to use to try to convince you that you ought to follow Jesus. None of that. Jesus just said, you're mine. Follow me. Let's go. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. What's the primary thing that Jesus does? Sure, he heals. Sure, he calls apostles. But notice how often you're going to see he taught, he taught, he taught. Because people simply cannot know the things of God unless somebody teaches you. Isn't that what we learned from the Ethiopian eunuch who said to Philip, when Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He was reading out of the book of Isaiah. And he says to him, do you know what you're reading? And the man says, how can I except some man teach me? Except some man guide me. How can I know? Starting right there, Philip then preaches Christ to him out of Isaiah. So Jesus on the planet immediately walks in to the synagogue in Capernaum and starts teaching, starts telling people the good news of God. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not like the scribes. Okay, so what would the scribes have done? The scribes would have said things like, it is written. The scribes would have said, well, you know, you can read this back in the book of Nehemiah. This is what it says. So there's no authority in themselves. All the authority is in the book. All the authority is in the words that came down from the prophets. They don't have any authority. But Jesus stood up and taught. And we know from like his Sermon on the Mount how often he would say things like, you've heard it said. And then he would quote the law or quote Moses. And then he would say, but I say. That's authority. That's the authority to change your view from what Moses said to what Jesus has to say. And so they were amazed by him because he taught like someone who had authority. He wasn't walking around saying, well, the prophet said, well, the 
the people in the Old Testament said, or once upon a time God said this to Abraham way back then. He stood up and taught them as, let me tell you about heaven because I've been there. Let me tell you about eternity and salvation because it's all in my hands. Let me tell you about the good news of God because I am the Messiah to come. And they were amazed by it. Verse 23, I'm nearly done. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to put us in the abyss? Have you come to drive us out? What have you come to do? Why are you here? It makes sense that we're here. It makes sense that we're driven down to the earth and we're occupying these human creatures. That makes sense. What are you doing here? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Okay, what is Mark doing? Why does Mark bring that up? Because he started with the baptism where the Spirit came down like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, God from heaven made that declaration. Now he's got the demons and the devils making that declaration. In between, he's in the wilderness taking control over wild animals and the devil. So what is Mark doing? He's showing who this Jesus is. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's the son of God. He's not just anybody hanging up there on that tree. This is the very sovereign son of God who gave himself an offering for sin. So that through him there could be the remission of sin because he has the power, he has the authority. When he's in the temple, he has authority. When he's dealing with demons, he has authority. He's the one who's in charge, and that's what Mark is setting up for you. They say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Is it worth pointing out that that demon approached Jesus in the temple? Interesting, huh? I say over and over again, get it right. Devils and demons don't mind worship. They just want to make sure it's the wrong worship. But they're perfectly happy to be in the temple, especially if they can steer it off the wrong way a little bit. Jesus shows up. They go, wait, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? This is the temple of God. I'm the son of God. This is my father's house. What do you mean? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the holy one of God. And Jesus... This is again going to be thematic in the early parts of Mark. You're going to see how frequently Mark points out that Jesus wanted to be kept a secret. He didn't want to be openly revealed until it was his time. And you're going to see Mark say that several times. Because Peter was aware of it several times. How often Jesus would heal people and say, no, don't tell anybody. How often he would tell people, be quiet. He tells the demons here, be quiet. Don't talk about who I am. 
I'm in the temple. I'm the son of God. Don't be talking about who I am because as soon as human beings know who I am, they'll kill me. And it's not my time yet. When it's my time, I'll go to Jerusalem and show myself and they will kill me. Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And the demon said, no, I don't think so. I like it here. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. Nope. No. Why did the demon leave him? He, was he had to. The absolute sovereign one said, leave him. The same sovereign one who said, follow me. Notice that. Don't miss that. The sovereign one says, follow me, and they follow. And the sovereign one says, demons get out of him, and they leave. Because he's in charge. That's the point. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying... What is this? A new teaching. Okay, that word new. A new teaching means that whatever Jesus was saying in the temple wasn't what they were used to hearing. He wasn't rubber stamping Moses. He wasn't saying, go back to Sinai and do the law. He was presenting some new teaching which was about him. He put himself at the center of the religious universe over and over again. Me, what you think about me, what you do with me determines your eternity. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus never preached an ethic apart from himself. He constantly said, me, this is about me, follow me. They're amazed by it and say, what is this, this new teaching with authority and he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. How do you argue with that? Let's see if we can put flesh and blood on this for just a moment. Okay, so George walks in here one day, and George says, um, me, it's all about me. Has he ever said that, Marie? Do we? Okay, never mind. He um, lives that spirit every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Live it. Don't give it up. Okay, so George walks in and he says, it's me. It's all about me. You know, you, you've got your religion. You know what the Bible says, but the Bible's wrong. It's about me. It's about me. We're all going to think George is a little wacky. George has gone around the bend and he's not likely to come back anytime soon. We think we got to put George in a rubber room somewhere. But... If a demoniac shows up and says, we know who you are, you're George. <laughs> if they call him right out, you're, what have you come here to do with us? What do you? And George says, okay, that's it. Come out of that guy. And the demons leave? I'm taking another look at George. I'm going to have to say, well, George got something I didn't understand a minute ago. It's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus gave them a teaching that would have rattled their teeth. He gave them a new teaching. Now, whatever the content of that new teaching, the Jews were not big on new. They were really big on 
old tradition, follow the paths, go by the way of Moses, stay on the right road. Jesus comes along and teaches something new, but he teaches it with authority, and then he proves his authority because even demons are afraid of him. And even the devil say, what are you to do with us? Have you come to punish us? Anybody watching, anybody listening is going to go, what is this? He has the power not only to drive out demons, but the demons recognize him as the son of God, the one who's going to punish them. He's the one who punishes demons. This guy has real, genuine authority. Okay, so doesn't that give a whole lot of credibility to what he said? That's my point. He didn't just say it and let it sit there. So now, why was there a demoniac in the temple? Because that's where Jesus was, and I think an absolutely sovereign God made sure that that demoniac was in that temple on that day to make sure that Jesus had somebody to take authority over so that everybody around would see this guy has authority over devils. We better listen to everything else he has to say. Because a sovereign God knows what he's doing. Last verse. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. He says, be quiet. Don't be telling people who I am. But because of what he did, the news starts spreading instantly. Mark wants you to know that when Jesus demonstrated his authority by his word and by taking authority over devils, that it wasn't done privately. It wasn't done in a dark room. It wasn't done in a closet. It wasn't done somewhere in deepest, darkest back country where nobody would see it or nobody know about it. He said it was done openly. Everybody saw it and everybody was talking about it. That's the kind of authority Jesus had right from the beginning. Mark is setting you up for what's to come. You got it? All right. Questions? Yes, sir. So, you know, I was taught, and it makes so much sense, that these four Gospels were basically targeted at the four people that existed in that day. Matthew to the Jews, that's why it's got all the Jewish stuff. Mark to the Roman soldiers, that's why it's got power immediately, blah, blah, blah. Luke to the Gentiles, that's why she said this, it was around that. And uh, John to the Christians. Does that not make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yes. And in fact... There's a purpose to each of the four Gospels that actually, I think, in some ways, this is uh, Scroggie. What's Scroggie's first name? William Graham Scroggie. William Graham Scroggie. In his book, A Guide to the Gospels, he argues that the four Gospels actually parallel the four faces of the angels that are pulling the chariot throne of God in the book of Ezekiel. There's a lot of parallels like that that show purpose for there being four Gospels four specifically, and that they're each emphasizing something, like you said, that Matthew is emphasizing that he is the Messiah to come, the King of Israel. And that's why he does so much quoting of the Old Testament prophets, and that's why it's written to Jews. And that Luke is writing to Greeks, and so he describes Jesus as the perfect man. And that John is writing to the church at large, Jesus, the the everlasting one the one who was there before the foundation of the world, and that Mark specifically is writing about Jesus as the suffering servant, as I've been saying this morning. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah. He's the fulfillment of the prophets, which is why he starts right out with, here's a prophecy fulfilled. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of credibility to that notion, and there's a lot of historicity to that notion 
that the four Gospels each serve a particular purpose written to a particular audience and that you're best off to read it within that context. You had your hand up. Oh, yeah. I was trying to think of how to phrase They can't hear you. I was trying to think of how to phrase my question. So, like, Peter... Wasn't Peter, like, the minister to the Jews, though? So, like, why was he writing to the Gentiles? But Mark is writing more to a Gentile audience, but he's using Peter as his source. And don't forget that Peter was also with Paul in Galatia and ate among the Gentiles and stuff. Don't forget that Peter was also the one that Cornelius was sent to, and God said, don't call unclean. And so Peter had a lot of interactions. In fact, when Paul came to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, it was Peter who came to Paul's defense that he also had seen how the Spirit of God had fallen upon the Gentiles. So how am I going to forbid them water? They should also be baptized. So Peter kind of has that, even though he is a... Uh, an apostle to the circumcision to the Jews he has a lot of Greek interaction Gentile interaction anything else I need to let you go is it just me or is it getting warm in here finally starting to get warm okay Uh, there's a cake out there which apparently is uh, Jean Tu's doing and so we're going to let him go back and cut it and for all you kids who were good kids this morning you get cake Anybody who can, who wants cake, talk to Jean too. Pardon? I guess it's for the thirties and other. Or the really ruffian over eighties. Yeah. So. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.